Um, we are continuing our series in the book of Acts, and uh, tonight we're actually concluding our kind of mini-series at the start of the book. So the first two chapters we've sort of grouped together in this series called Starting Well. So five weeks ago, we started Starting Well, Well, and tonight we're finishing Starting Well, Well. And I promise you that's good English. I practiced it. Um, so this section that we're in is uh, we've got the last six verses. Liam had something like 35 verses last week, and we've only got six tonight. So you can hope for a short message if you want. Um, I can't guarantee that I'm going to deliver it. But we are at the end, and this last uh, section acts as kind of like a conclusion to the opening couple of chapters. Uh, the episodes that we've been dealing with so far have had to do with the promise of God's Spirit, and uh, then the, the waiting for God's Spirit, and then the receiving of God's Spirit, and then the immediate demonstration of God's Spirit through tongues of fire and the proclaiming of the gospel message. And what we have tonight in these last six verses of the second chapter of the book of Acts is kind of like a, a, a summary or, or a postscript or a resolution to that opening sequence. That has happened, therefore this is the result. And we see that it's a kind of flavor among the lives of the disciples in the very first days of the Christian church existing. And what the, the result is, is an unexplainable unity. The, the disciples find themselves suddenly and immediately joined to one another in a, in a unity that is very difficult to describe or explain. And we know that as Christians that we are the body of Christ. We are one together. We are unified. We are in Christ. But what does that look like? What is the closest sort of comparison that you can make to the kind of unity we experience here? What is it that makes, it, makes us unified other than this roof? Right, being all in the same place. You know, is it, could, could you find the same kind of unity at, a, at another social club, at a, at a sporting club, at, at your local football club or your local bowls club or bowling club? I'm not sure if anyone does bowling club these days. What about, uh, is, is it more like the unity in a family? Uh, or is it more like the unity in a workplace? You know, everyone's sort of moving towards a common goal. Or is it more like the unity in a political party, which is a, an alignment of views? Uh, well, the truth is, as you would expect, uh, there are elements of all of those aspects of unity in the unity in Christ, but it's far more uh, profound and spiritual than that. And so, if you are willing... If you're willing tonight to allow God's word to transform you, then the purpose of our message tonight is that you might feel more in unity with the person sitting next to you. Or, or even better, you might feel more in unity with the person sitting across the room from you. That's the goal of what we are looking at tonight. So let's just uh, read the passage together. If you've got your Bibles, the second chapter of the book of Acts, we're starting in verse 42. It will be on the screen for you if you don't have your own uh, words in front of you. So just uh, be mindful that um, the, what's just happened is that Peter has just said, uh, he's just given the sermon, the first ever Christian sermon. It was a doozy. 
and uh, resulted in a call to repentance and faith. And then the response was that 3,000 people uh, repented and put their faith in Jesus Christ and were added to the number of the 120 disciples who were initially in the upper room and who were blessed with the tongues of fire to go out and proclaim in all different languages the, the glories and the message of God. And so in the opening words of 42, when it says they, it's referring to the whole number, not just the 120 disciples, but the full 3,120. So here we go. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And so the result of this opening sequence of events with regards to the Spirit and the coming of the Spirit is that these people find themselves kind of immediately joined in this unexplainable unity. That morning, they all spoke different languages. They came from different parts of the, you know, the, the world, the Mediterranean and North Africa and um, Asia Minor and, and around the Mediterranean area. And they were all from different cultural backgrounds. You know, most of them traveling there were, were Jews, so they had some elements in common. But there, were, there was far more that was different about them than was uh, unified. And then somehow by the afternoon, they're all together in one group, in one body, experiencing this uh, unexplained, unexplainable unity. I, would, I mean, it's an ironic title, right, because I'm going to spend the next half an hour or so explaining it to you, but there are elements of it which sort of defy understanding without knowing what it is that characterizes this unity. So to put this in a modern context, this would be like a religious gathering of uh, Christians where all of the different denominations would be represented. There are uh, Baptists, there are Presbyterians, there are uh, Catholics, there are Anglicans, there are Pentecostals, there are uh, Churches of Christ. Everybody's there who loosely call themselves Christian, but the things that divide them uh, seem to make more of a difference than the things that unite them, which is somehow the place that we've gotten to in the uh, modern church. Or even more uh, illustrative, you know, even within the, the Baptist group, uh, there, are, there are different casserole recipes that they disagree about. If you uh, understand the, the Baptist context, it's all about um, pasta dishes in their, in their potlucks. I grew up as a Baptist, right, so I remember all of that. Or maybe if, if you're a Presbyterian, right, some of them liked cold beer and some of them liked warm beer, and they struggled to get over that difference. But suddenly, suddenly none of those things matter. Everybody can eat the same casserole. Everybody enjoys the same beer. Suddenly, the, the things that divide them are not as important as the things that uh, unite them. And that is because sin divides, but the gospel unites. Okay, sin divides, but the gospel unites. And so the number 3,000 ends up being very important here because uh, way back in... Uh, Exodus, when Moses comes down from the Mount Sinai with the tablets to consummate the old covenants with the people of Israel, he finds them worshipping a golden calf. 
It's like I'm gone for five minutes and then you, uh, this is what you do it. And so on that day, how many people died as a result of that? Right? 3,000 people were killed because on the day that God, was trying, God came to consummate the old covenant, he found them in idol worship and then 3,000 died. And so it's no coincidence that on the day that the new covenant was to be consummated by the presence of the Spirit, that the first addition to the kingdom of God was the exact same number, 3,000 people, lost because of the sin of the old covenant, brought in because of the gospel of the new covenant. And it's more significant than that because if we go back to Genesis chapter 11 and we remember the story of the Tower of Babel where people in their arrogance and their pride start to challenge God, and then God is forced to, to, to disperse them by giving them all different languages. And so their sin divided them. And yet here on the day of Pentecost, we have the blessing of everybody's getting to hear it in their own language. So even though they're from all of these different places, they're suddenly unified by hearing the same message. So what sin had divided in the old scenario, in the Old Testament, has now been brought together united by the gospel. See, sin divides, but the gospel unites. And so what is the flavor of this unity? What does it, what does it look like? Well, our verse uh, 42 gives us four different flavors of this, uh, this uh, unity, this unexplainable unity. It says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And so to take those briefly one at a time, the apostles' teaching uh, is basically what we have in the New Testament. Okay, so at this point in time, the apostles are now uh, presumably fleshing out to them the interpretation of Old uh, Old Testament Scripture in light of what Jesus has done. Just like Jesus was explaining on the Emmaus Road, just like Peter suddenly was inspired to give as the, as the, the Pentecost sermon, they're starting to flesh out the teaching of Christianity. And so we have that in written and full form in the New Testament, in actually fuller and more accessible form than they did on this day. This was being sort of expounded uh, in the moment by the disciples. So we might say they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That was to reading and understanding the Bible. Now, as a community of people here at Kemmel Church who have been through this journey of the book of Acts, we know that we don't worship the Bible, do we? We worship the God of the Bible. And we understand that Jesus is present and living in his word. And so for us to devote ourselves to the Bible doesn't look like Bible worship. It actually looks like saying, Jesus, do what you want to do. We're opening your word and we expect you to speak to us. Do what you want to do. So they were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. And the second one is to fellowship. And we're going to spend a lot of tonight uh, talking about that idea. The third one was to the breaking of bread. And now at this point in in history, this phrase, the breaking of bread, uh, basically just meant sharing a meal together. But it was slowly developing kind of a technical sense, which meant the communion meal, the ceremony which Jesus instituted at the Last Supper. And interestingly, there's actually a a much closer connection between those two ideas than we tend to think because of the way that we do communion, right? Little cups, little wafers, and and micro doses of grape juice, Uh, whereas this was a a meal together. And we'll we'll talk about communion uh, and the significance of that as well because it's it's very significant. And then the fourth thing is that they devote themselves to prayer. 
Um, now, the, the word prayer appears uh, in the original language in the, pl the plural, right? So it's prayers rather than just prayer, which actually is probably an indication because we're also told in verse um, 46, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. Um, so they were going to the temple every day and committing themselves to the prayers, which probably indicates that they were participating in normal temple worship. So uh, whatever liturgy, whatever reading, whatever you know, expounding would normally happen, they were devoted to that every day. So it's not just praying. <clears throat> pardon me. It's also just the, the overall picture of what it meant to worship and be in the temple and be in church. So they're the four things. Now we need to know that this word translated as devoted is the Greek word proskarteruntes, which means dogged persistence, to adhere fastly to someone or something, stubbornness in, continue, in continuing. So they were devoting themselves in a way that was kind of, that, that's all that they had a mind for. They couldn't think about anything else other than reading the Bible or listening to the apostles, spending time with each other, sharing meals together, and praying, worshipping, serving uh, in the temple. They stuck to that doggedly, stubbornly. And I wonder, what was the last thing you did stubbornly? What was the last thing you guarded so fiercely that nothing could intrude on that time? And you know, if I'm honest, for me, it, that's probably supporting my football team and waking up at silly hours to, to watch them play because they're not uh, in Australia. It's a very challenging idea that they were just so devoted to all of that stuff that was going on. Now, we need to qualify something here because it's very easy for me as a, as a preacher to get up and say, we need to be devoted to reading the Bible, to coming to church, to uh, worshipping, and to spending time together. It's very easy for me to say that. Uh, but if placing that on people as a burden, I don't believe that that's the gospel. I don't believe that's the gospel because... Peter uh, preached to these guys, repent and believe. And this was the result. The burdens were not placed upon them that your life must look like this and this and this. He said, repent and believe. And this was a natural outflow of what was the transformation that now occurred inside of them. And so if we're actually going to get anywhere close to this, we need to find the place where we're so transformed by God that these behaviors come out of us naturally. Because if you try and sign up to this, if you try and commit to this, it, it doesn't work. It's not going to work. It's too much. It doesn't make sense. The gospel means that you have new life. So I want to talk about that, that second word uh, in verse 42, which is fellowship. Fellowship is an old-fashioned word, which you probably won't hear outside the context of church and Christianity which is actually useful for us because it means that we can invest into this word uh, a kind of particular meaning that helps us understand what our Christian life looks like without being worried that it's confused with you know, um, other ideas. So this fellowship word is used to translate a Greek word, uh, koinonia. And uh, if you've been a Christian for you know, maybe a couple of decades, you've probably come across this word before. Has anyone heard of this word before? Some people have. Now, you don't need to know Greek to be a Christian. Please, you don't. That's just for nerds like me. But if you, what you find is that there are some biblical words that are so rich and so full of meaning that you end up kind of coming across them and 
uh, learning them because they really aid the way that we understand and practice Christianity. And so this is, is kind of one of those words. So you might, you might learn that word uh, tonight, but even if you don't, it's fellowship. So here are some definitions for you. Close association involving mutual interests and sharing. Association, communion, fellowship, close relationship. An attitude of goodwill that manifests an interest in a close relationship. Generosity, fellow feeling, altruism. You don't have to know what all of those words mean, right? I'm just trying to flesh it out, paint a picture for you here. Uh, But there are three emphases in this definition when it comes to fellowship. Okay, the first thing is about uh, proximity. It's about close, being close to someone, a close relationship. And the second one is about having a, a positive relationship. And isn't it true that those two things often don't go together? The closer relationship you have with someone, the more difficult it is for that to be a positive thing. And likewise, you can have positive relationship with lots of people as long as you don't get too close to them. But fellowship, right, this, this word, koinonia, what we have as Christians is actually something that allows us to have both of those in fullness. But the third emphasis here is not just close and positive relationship, but one that results in a, a sharing and a participation of life. Right, sharing life together. It's more than just having common interests. It's more than just attending the same weekly meeting. It's actually about sharing life together. And so this word uh, koinonia means that kind of sharing attitude, that participation together, a close and a positive relationship. And the picture that we have of sharing in uh, this passage is really quite incredible. Right? They were selling everything they had and pooling their money so that if anyone had any needs, they were able to provide for them. I mean, that's pretty incredible, right? Have you ever seen that before? Some of you are like communism. But no, this is, this is different. There's the one key difference is that this is voluntary, okay? Because communism is when it's mandated on you, right? Let's keep a level playing field. But this is done purely out of the goodwill of everyone. There's this sense of, no, we're so much in this together that um, we are looking after each other. No one had any needs that were not met by the group. But you know what is even more profound than that? Thanks, Ruth. That was a dramatic pause. Um, what's even more profound than that is that this is the first ever occurrence of the word koinonia in the New Testament. What's, what's the big deal about that? Okay, well, if you were to put a pin in the timeline, right, for when the Holy Spirit comes and the church is born as we sang in that song, before then, no koinonia. After then, koinonia. Right, because the Holy Spirit coming is what actually allows this fellowship, this connection to occur, which means that this fellowship is a work of God's spirit. It's not something that we can manufacture, and it's not something that we can even get outside of the Christian faith. You know, if we tried to to mandate these things as a work of the flesh, it just wouldn't work. All right, everyone. I want you to get out your phone, and I want you to type out a text message to your boss. Sorry, boss, not coming in this week. I'll be at church. Anyone hit send? I'll do it. Is that all right, Pat? 
Yeah. <laughs> no, it just doesn't make sense, does it? Right? And that is because you, you can't mandate this stuff. You can't ex- explain this stuff. It doesn't make sense. It just pours out of some shift, some fruit of the Spirit. And as Martin Lloyd-Jones once said in, in a, a sermon on this passage, he said that the Christian is a man who can only be explained by the new life in him. You look at the stuff that we do as Christians. You look at the set of values that we have, the decisions that we make, the way that we treat money, the way that we treat vulnerable people in society. That doesn't make sense, certainly not from an evolutionary perspective. But the only way that you can really understand what motivates a Christian person is by understanding that there is new life in them, that the Holy Spirit has come, the old is gone. Behold, the new has come. That is, if we let the Spirit have the say in our lives. And these things, this, this scenario is something that can only happen as uh, an outpouring of the Spirit. And so this fellowship that we have is more than you can get in a social club, more than you can get in a political party, more than you can get in a sporting team, more than you can get in a workplace, more even than you can get in a family. So to understand the richness of this idea, of this fellowship Koinonia, we're going to have a a look at the other ways this is used in the New Testament. So we'll see uh, that firstly, it's something that's not just a connection with each other, but it's actually a very joining of ourselves with the Trinitarian God. 1 John 1.3 says, We proclaim to you what we've seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.9, God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. 1 Corinthians 10.16, and is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the body of Christ? And is not the bread, sorry, that should say blood of Christ. I meant to fix that typo and I didn't. And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? And uh, the, the words participation in there is, is actually a translation of this Greek word uh, koinonia. And so you can see that our unity, right, our fellowship is not just with each other, but it's actually with God the Father. It's with God the Son, and, and specifically, it is through the suffering of the Son. Right? We are joined with him in his death, which is why the old man has been put to death and the new man has come. It's why through the sacrifice of Jesus, the breaking of his body, the shedding of his blood, that we actually have fellowship with God and that we have fellowship with one another. Uh, The next verse from uh, somewhere on the next slide, Uh, 2 Corinthians 13, 14, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So we have this word fellowship used for all of the uh, persons in the Trinity, God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so we don't just have fellowship with one another. God has joined us into fellowship, into connection, into unity with himself, with the very fundamental and primary and powerful principle in this whole universe. You and I are connected to him through that. And so the unity that we experience with one another is a unity in God. Can you see how profound that unity is? Can you see how that you cannot get that anywhere else? You cannot get that kind of connection at any other place in society. But God invites us into connection with him, into unity of his very person. 
It's why we can be the body of Christ. Some other uses there, uh, it's described as the fellowship of our faith. So we have four withs, with us, with the Father, with the Son, with the Spirit, and we have an of, fellowship of our faith, and we have an in. It's a stage thing. Fellowship in the gospel. And what does that mean? Well, it means that the qualifications for fellowship are believing in Jesus Christ. That's it. It's your faith in the gospel message. The implications of that is that your fellowship with everyone else is is not based on skin color, not based on age, not based on economic status, not based on mutual interests, not based on intellect, not based on looks, nothing at all based on our faith in Jesus Christ. And so if you're in the same room with somebody who knows Jesus and your connection with them is, is stronger than any other thing that you could possibly have in common or not in common. A few years ago, we, we've been attending this church since it started almost four years ago and um, maybe three, three and a half years ago, we were looking at starting some small groups in the church. And so Beck and I put our hands up to host a small group. Evelyn was just a baby uh, at the time. Uh, and so we, we put our hands up to host a small group. And the day was coming where, you know, Trish had just sort of put us all into this group chat with a bunch, or given us numbers of all of these people that we didn't know, had no idea who they were. And um, we'd sent out a message. And so we were just literally waiting in our home for a bunch of strangers to knock on our door for us to welcome them in, give them a cup of tea and talk about the Bible. That's odd, is it not? Right? So we had no idea what to expect. We didn't know who was going to come to our door. And the people that came were just such an eclectic bunch of people. We, we were the youngest there. The ages were all different. You know, some people were shift workers. Some people were part-time. Some people were full-time. Some people owned a business. Some people uh, were semi-retired. Some people had children. Some people were married. Some people were divorced. Some people were single. Some people were brand-new Christians and had barely seen the inside of a church. It was such a disparate group of people. But I tell you what was bizarre is that almost instantly there was a bond formed between us and, and all of us reflected on this afterwards going, that was weird. That was like, it, I, was, I can't say it's unnatural because actually it felt the opposite of that, right? It, it felt like the most natural thing, right? And that's because it was, it was this, this koinonia, this, this spiritual connection that was just instantly formed where we didn't really know these people and yet we would somehow do anything for them within you know, an hour of spending time with each other. And then that group was one of the reasons that we you know, committed so, so hard to this church and that we, we grew uh, in our own spiritual journey and that we experienced the love of other people. That is koinonia. That is the, the fellowship. You see, our default position is to divide but we need to let the gospel unite us. And so if I can give you some practical encouragement tonight, it is to not let the things that separate you cause any kind of division or to stop you from reaching out to people. Right? We are one in Christ, which means that we should, we should not be looking at the things that make us different. We should be focusing on Jesus who brings us together and who unites us. 
You know, don't, don't just look at someone and think, well, they're not the same age as me, so, or, or they're, you know, not as outgoing as, you know, I would like them to be, or they're not, they don't have the same interests as me. No. We need to be a place of, of fellowship where the gospel unites us and where all of those dividing walls are broken. What we need to do is, is like what happens in Galatians chapter 2, where Peter, James, and John extend to Paul and to Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognize the grace that was given to Paul. Now, you see, James and, and Peter and John had theological differences with Paul. They didn't agree on matters that they all, they all considered pretty important to do with you know, Jews and Gentiles. And in fact, uh, Paul had the reputation of killing Jews. James, Peter, and John happened to be Jews. And yet, they were able to extend fellowship because of that common ground that they had in the grace of Jesus Christ. And I wonder if somebody walked through those doors who had a different set of theological assumptions to you and who maybe had a reputation for harming uh, your family or the group of people that you hang out with, and yet you recognize the grace of Jesus Christ on their life. You recognize that there was a transformation in that person and that they were now a fellow believer. Would you be able to extend to them the right hand of fellowship? I wonder. It's a work of the Spirit. We have to allow God to do that in our lives. So if you will allow yourself to be formed by the word of God this evening, then would you decide to extend the right hand of fellowship to those around you? Now let's talk about uh, that third one, the, the breaking of bread, which is the uh, eventually understood as the communion ceremony. Um, communion is something that's understood very differently across many different denominations, and there are some kind of theological reasons for that and, and some uh, significant historical ones for that. Um, but I'm not going to go into what those differences are other than to sort of explain what is actually happening here as we see in Acts chapter 2 in the New Testament. If you did want to talk about, you know, communion and because and, we're, we're not a sacramental church, we don't have sacraments administered by um, uh, anointed uh, priests, um, but if you did want to talk about any of those differences, then I'm happy to have a chat afterwards. But I want to show you what's happening here in Acts chapter 2 with the breaking of bread. Because this is much more a meal shared together than it is some kind of ceremony or um, sacrament. And so the sharing of a meal occurred and there was no sort of like administration, right? The apostles weren't going around kind of administering every single meal. It was just kind of happening with a mindfulness about the symbols of the bread and the wine. So they would share a meal together, uh, they would break the bread, they would eat, they would drink, and then as they were doing that, they would remember what Jesus had done. They would remember the sacrifice of his body and his blood shed uh, on the cross. And one theologian remarked that it's, it's not so much a, a sacramental occurrence in that moment as it is the experience of sharing a meal with people that they would otherwise not have any association with. So the experience of the unity, the communion, that's why it's called communion. It's a community. It's done together. Union. 
the experience of community in that is the very fact that they are sitting down with people who that morning spoke a different language. I mean, they probably still spoke a different language, right? But that was a dividing barrier between them. But now they're sharing a meal together. It's, it's a, a visible and public recognition that actually nothing divides us anymore. You and I are the same, right? Just because you have a different casserole recipe, like we're still one in Christ. And so the communion meal is something that demonstrates visibly and tangibly the unity that has been bought by the cross of Jesus. Is that making sense? We kind of lose a little bit of this in, in the way that we sort of practice uh, communion in our, in our churches. And, and there's a, again, there's kind of a historical reason for that, and we'll, we'll have a glimpse into, into one of those reasons in a moment. But just as a, legit, a, a just as legitimate way of you celebrating communion would be to invite somebody to your house and share a meal together, knowing that you have union in Christ. What better expression is there of community and fellowship and unity than sharing a meal together? So... The demonstration in the act of communion is that prior to that, right, sin had separated. They were, they were all separate for many different reasons, which were a result of the presence of sin in the world, but now the gospel had united them. And so the communion celebration is actually a very profound picture of the unity that we have in the gospel. But we need to address a bit of an elephant in this passage uh, or, or that come out of thinking about this passage. And that is, what about disunity? What about disunity? Because it's all well and good to decide, you know, we need to return to the church of the book of Acts. But that's actually a false presupposition because which church are you talking about? There are lots of churches in the books of, book of Acts and the church itself develops throughout the book of Acts. In fact, it's probably arguable that the community of believers that we see in Acts chapter 2 doesn't quite qualify as a church in a theological sense. And in fact, the kind of unity that they have doesn't last. It doesn't last very long at all. We're going to see in a couple of chapters' time when they're trying to do this. They're trying to sell their possessions, pull their money, and, and you know do good for everybody. And yet some people get it so catastrophically wrong that they die. God kills them because of the, getting, getting this idea wrong. So the unity doesn't last. And look, it's, it's not untrue to say that our church is, is not very unified in a global sense. And even in a local sense, disunity seems to be a constant struggle in the church. Has anyone been there? You've, you've gone through a church split. You've seen how disunity can form. What do we do about that? What do we do about that? Well, I want to give you two uh, examples of a, a type of, of disunity. The first one comes from 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul is writing to the Corinthians, and he says, he, he says, you know, I've heard that there are divisions among you, the opposite of this unity. And then he goes on for the rest of 1 Corinthians 11 to sort of call them out on the fact that some of them are abusing communion. They're abusing the Lord's Supper. 
Some of them are, are showing up with hungry bellies going, I'm going to get a free meal, and they're, they're being greedy and they're gorging themselves and other people are going without. And Paul's saying that that behavior is destroying the fellowship with which communion is meant to represent. Right, so you can see how closely connected the Lord's Supper is to this expression of unity that we have as a body of Christ. The fact that behaving inappropriately or doing the wrong thing around communion uh, has caused actually a destruction of the unity of the body of Christ. Right, and so that's an example where it's, it's basically just an obvious you know, sinful behavior, misbehavior. And, and the correction there is to simply you know, call it out and say, this, this is not what the Bible says we need to be doing. This is not what God gave us, and we need to pull ourselves into line. But the second example is a much more difficult one, because it comes from Acts 15, where Paul and Barnabas have this big disagreement. And I had a, a friend in ministry who used to call this clash, he called it the Barney. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Right, that's a very strongly worded sentence. Because Paul and Barnabas had a disagreement about where they felt God was leading. And it resulted in them parting company in what we can only assume was probably a, a strange relationship at, at the least maybe even a falling out as they separate. So you've got two people who both feel like they're pursuing God's leading, like God is leading this way and God is leading this way, but they're opposed to each other. What do we do with that? Because the fact is this is very prevalent in, in, in churches today, and, and it's one of the major reasons for a church lit, and it's why the divisions can be so deep. Because you look at the other side and you go, we're following God. What are you doing? And they're looking at you saying exactly the same thing. How do we reconcile that? I'm afraid I don't have an answer for you. You can ask Pat. He might know. But what I can point out to you is that Jesus' work on the cross was finished. And the unity that we have is a work of the Spirit. And so when it goes wrong, it is the result of a sinful body. Now, that's incredibly simplistic. That is incredibly simplistic. And I don't mean to, um, to not do justice to the complex situations that some people might be finding themselves in here. But I need to point us to Ephesians 4, verse 3, where Paul says, Make every effort to keep the unity of spirit through the bond of peace, why would Paul say make every effort unless we had to, to, keep, to try, to try for unity, to strive for unity, unless there would be threats to our unity coming upon us? All right, so the very fact that he has to say make every effort to keep the unity is suggesting that things are going to come to challenge your unity. And that's true, isn't it? Things are going to come to challenge our unity as a church. Not just that, but he says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. He doesn't say to achieve the unity, to find the unity, to gain the unity. He says to keep it, because we've already got it. It's already there. It is part of the finished work of Christ. And so whenever it disappears, it's, it's, it's not Jesus. It's not a fault of his work. It's not a fault of his working in salvation. It's it's us. I mean, those of you who are on TikTok or Instagram, it's, it's the Taylor Swift 
song, you know? It's me, hi, I'm the problem, it's me. There's like two people on Instagram. My wife is shaking her head up the back. I'm not cool enough to make references to that. So, But no, the idea is that we've been given the unity and that we need to strive to keep it. And so I don't know the complexity of, of the situation that you're going through, but we are told that we need to strive to keep that unity. Right? That if we haven't made every effort to keep the unity through the bond of peace, the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace, then we haven't listened to what God has asked us to do. Now, obviously, there are some situations that are very complex, and unity isn't always achievable. And there are people masquerading as um, Christians with whom unity is impossible because it's, it's, it's a masquerade. But we are told to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And perhaps, perhaps there is someone here who knows that you've got a fractured relationship or a, or a disagreement of opinion or a falling out that maybe you haven't made every effort to keep the unity through, of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Perhaps it's also worth mentioning briefly that I haven't got it up there, but the other uses of this word koinonia include uh, mostly in the book of 1 John where it says that uh, light does not have fellowship, koinonia, with darkness. Light cannot have fellowship with darkness. And that's not to say don't hang out with non-Christians. No. That's to say that you cannot be joined in community with things that are evil. Right? So if you're attempting to make peace, you're attempting to, to gain unity, you cannot gain unity with something that is evil. It's just not going to work. So, one last idea to, to deal with here, because we need to put this passage in its appropriate uh, moment, in its appropriate context. Because we've said that we can't put these things upon us as burdens. It just doesn't work. These things have to be a, a move of God's Spirit. And what we see in the book of Acts chapter 2 is most certainly a revival moment. A moment where God's Spirit is coming and people are responding and God's Spirit is carrying them into just some you know, incredible expression of the realities of heaven on earth. And you see, revival is, is a moment when these, when these realities and these ideals of heavens just sort of break through into our world and everything else kind of melts away and, and we're just so, so caught up in God's spirit and in, with God's people uh, that God begins to do incredible things. And if any, of, have you, if any of you have been following what's happening overseas in Kentucky at the moment where um, there's a, a university, uh, Asbury Hall, where... Um, they've had a chapel service that started 11 days ago and it's still going, 24-7, right, 11 days later, spontaneously. They didn't plan it. They got to the end of their chapel service and the students were invited to confess to one another, to repent, to pray with one another. And then suddenly, no one wanted to leave. And time went on and no one wanted to leave. And 11 days later, people are, are swelling and, and coming into that. They've been worshipping God and praying and spending time with each other nonstop for 11 days. Is that not what we see in this passage? Every day going to the temple, every day going to church, praising God, spending time with one another. And I tell you, you can go and do some reading on what's, what's happening. There are a lot of very different opinions, but I'd encourage you to find one that, that's been there. 
and, and that has an experience of it um, rather than one that's trying to comment on it from the outside. Because the, the, what seems to be happening is there's just, there's just a sweetness. There's just a joy. It's, it's not ecstatic. It's not, you know, crazy things going on. It's just people just, just loving God and loving each other in that moment. And we long to see things like that happen, but we can't force them to happen. It's just, it has to be a move of God's Spirit, something inspired by God. And who knows? Maybe we're going to be here in eight hours' time, still singing. It was a nervous giggle. Who knows what the Spirit's doing? We long for these moments, but life gets messy, and it gets uh, difficult for us. And I'll uh, invite the band up just as we uh, look to, to close off tonight. But we long to see God move in these ways. And we also see what is the result of this situation. What is the result of a group of believers who come together and who, who let all of the dividing barriers fall away? Everything that separates them disappears and they allow the gospel to unite them in the fact that they are one in Christ. What happens? Praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. Do we not desire that? Do we not desire for the Lord to add to our number daily those being saved? Not because we want to be big, not because we want to be important, but because we want the name of Jesus to be important and because we want the kingdom of God to be growing. We want people who are lost to become found. We want people who don't know God to know God. We want people who've fallen asleep in their spirituality to wake up and to come alive in Jesus. And if we have this sweetness of fellowship among us, if we extend to each other tonight and next week, and maybe tomorrow night, maybe, maybe the next day, maybe at another time, if we extend to each other the right hand of fellowship and we say that we are together, we're not divided, the things that the world says are separate about us, well, they don't matter to us, actually, because we are one in Christ. If we let our fellowship be characterized by that sweetness and that openness and that joyfulness, Will God add to our number each day? Maybe. I don't know. Is it worth a shot? I think so. And so as we conclude tonight, I just want to leave you with one encouragement from 1 John 4, 7. It's our encouragement tonight. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love is from God. Let's pray.